I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Today our guest is Lloyd Knight. He's Deputy Director for the Idaho State Department of Agriculture. We're talking about quagga mussels invading the Snake River watershed, Peter. This is a really important topic, a news item that I'm sure a lot of Idahoans heard. We'll get more information on that. Yeah, and you just, you know how important it is by how quickly our Department of Ag really tackled the mussels. Well, it's, the, it's yeah. the invasion that we've been worried about for right. a long time, right. and uh, we'll, we'll dig into that. But first, Peter, give us some nature news. We've got some nature news. Leaf, have you ever wondered why your dog eats poop? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very personal question, Peter. Okay. Well, I, you know, I've wondered. I, I've wondered <laughs> quite often. So, but, so we're going to go back to a study from 2018 that found about 23% of dogs in the U.S. This is based off of 4,000 dogs in their pet surveys have eaten poop at least once in their lifetime. Well, I've wondered this, and I'm sure a lot of pet owners wonder, what are they doing? What are they doing? Yeah. yeah. But get this. Of that survey, 16% of the dogs are frequent poop eaters. Oh, geez. So I, I don't know how much poop you have to eat to be a frequent poop eater, <laughs> but they are. One of the terms that we have for eating poop is... Uh, Coprophagia. Uh, uh, coprophages, yes. Yes, and legomorphs. Rabbits are quite indeed they are. known for eating their own poop. But dogs do that as well. And, you know, honestly, one shouldn't be overly concerned that your dog is eating feces because, I mean, it's not really dangerous. It's just right. kind of really gross when you think about well. it. But, <laughs> when uh, they lick your face afterwards. When they lick your face afterwards, <laughs> right? Right, and they're all happy and proud. But... You know, what they're kind of thinking is that this behavior is a leftover evolutionary trait for back when uh, we domesticated wolves. Oh. So what wolves do for at least the first three years of a newborn's lives, the parents and the other adult wolves will actually eat the fresh poop of these wolf pups and okay. wolf youngsters. And why they think they do that is because poop and wolf poop can carry a lot of parasitic eggs. Okay. And if it is a fresh poop, those eggs really aren't dangerous at that point. And so right. if these wolf adults come in and eat that fresh poop, then it reduces the risks of the pack developing heartworm or other parasitic type problems because the eggs will kind of hatch and do their thing the longer the poop's sitting out in the environment. So, so this is maybe for gaining immunity or something? Yeah, like it's, it's for pack health. Wow. And, okay. and so you eat the fresh poop and it's not all that bad. Now, why dogs eat other animals' poops? Like if you have cat, I, I don't know. Maybe don't it tastes it. good. I don't. I, I don't. I don't get it. So, but there is a potential reason, a health reason, as to eat why why we dogs do this. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I'll I'll ask my dog next time she okay. does that. Please do. Yeah. I'll yeah. report back. You know, I've been talking to my cats, and they're like, I don't know. Dogs are messed up, man. They're messed up. <laughs> That's great. Our trivia question today is, when were quagga mussels first found in North America? When we come back from the break, Lloyd Knight joins us to talk more about the mussels. Stay tuned. 
Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. (laughs) Let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well. The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to welcome our guest today, Lloyd Knight, to the show. He's Deputy Director for the Idaho State Department of Agriculture. We're talking about quagga mussels. First off, thanks for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Well, Lloyd, I guess first off, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Well, I am Deputy Director of the Idaho State Department of Agriculture. I've been in this position since January. I've been with the agency since 2009. I was formerly the administrator of the Division of Plant Industries, which actually included includes the noxious weed and invasive species programs, among others. So quite a bit of background in the topic from a management standpoint. Grew up in in southern Idaho, grew up in Glens Ferry, halfway between Boise and Twin Falls on the Snake River. Dad's a veterinarian, so your your topic earlier before the break is is one that uh, <laughs> sounds like something we may have talked around the dinner table about back when I was growing up. We always <laughs> talked about something with feces or reproduction or something, so I appreciate that topic. But that's what I do here at the department. Well, Lloyd, can you kind of give us the basics of quagga mussels? Honestly, I have always heard about zebra mussels, and quagga wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. It's always been zebra mussels. Well, it's interesting because we, in our programming here, we almost talk about quagga and zebra as if they are peanut butter and jelly. You know, they are closely related. They're both dry-scented mussels. They both behave much the same way for all practical purposes to talk about them in much difference without getting too nuanced and techy. You know, they're kind of the same thing in the sense that they, they do the same kind of damage. They present the same kind of challenge in the ecosystem. They both concern us as equally. They may have some different nuances on how they may survive cold or different water chemistries a little bit. But for all practical purposes, we kind of use those terms interchangeably. I almost always say quagga zebra, almost as if they're the same thing, which, of course, is not totally biologically cor- correct. But from the standpoint of managing a program and trying to get the message across, you know, they're kind of the same things, but they're, they're something we don't want, obviously. And in parts of the country where they have, have been found previously and established themselves, they've had a tremendous impact on the ecosystem. They've had a tremendous impact on, on infrastructure, on the use of water. You know, those that have them in their areas have to spend quite a bit of money on treating water for drinking and other purposes before they utilize them so they don't foul entire infrastructure systems. Their filter feeders so have a big impact on on the water bodies that they're in, uh, you know, people talk about great clarity in, in water bodies such as um, the Great Lakes where they are, which you might think is a great idea until you realize what that clarity impact has on the growth of 
aquatic weeds and algae and fish habitat and all those kinds of things. So what do they look like? Like, how would I recognize one if I were to see one in front of me? That's a good question. So they're they're not large. You know, they'll usually run about the size of a fingernail in, in very rough terms. I realize we all have different sized fingernails, but I suppose all those muscles may be different <laughs> sizes depending on maturity and everything as well. They're roughly the size of a fingernail and zebra mussels and quagga mussels both have some unique striping on their shell. They're not something you normally are going to see or probably recognize unless they're really congregated. You know, we do have in the, especially in the Snake River system, there are a lot of native mussels and snails and such in the Snake River system that, you know, every once in a while before this, we would get calls, somebody saying, well, I found one, you know, well, but it's about four times the size that they normally are. And it's probably some sort of native mussel. You know, but there's lots of good pictures on the internet and, and even in some of our website materials that show pictures of them, usually pictures that we've had from other states that where there's a lot of congregation of them. And, and you'll see them, if they're really in thick infestation, they'll literally will cover the surfaces of everything, whether it's a dam surface, rocks, people that have been to Lake Powell talk about, you know, below the water line, seeing those mussels, you know, literally cover the entire rock face. Um, millions of them. And that's obviously what we, we don't believe we have anything to that extent. And certainly we don't want something to that extent. So what are some of the steps that we're taking as, as the state of Idaho to kind of prevent or hopefully limit exposure of the quagga mussels? I know we, you, you come into the state on I-15 and there's the boat checks and such. Mm-hmm. Do we do more than boat checking? And when we stop, and I think it's important for people to understand when you have a boat and you see a boat check, most definitely stop. You know, what else can we do to, to kind of help stop or slow down the invasion? So really to answer that, maybe it's good if I start at the beginning of the program. When we started the program in 2009, the original authorizing statute was in 2008. And at the time we had seen you know, legislators and, and agency folks and, and folks that care about issues like this had seen the march and the spread of these muscles that started. Well, I won't, I know that's a trivia question, so I won't get ahead of the trivia question. <laughs> but as muscles were first introduced, you know, they, they really wanted to try to keep that march from happening beyond initially the Great Lakes. And then that moved further west and it got to, to the lower Colorado. When we started our program, we knew that we needed to figure out a way to prevent that risk of of movement across the west and certainly into the columbia river basin so we started we're among the first states if not the first state to start a statewide prevention program that focused on roadside watercraft inspection stations we know we knew then and we know now that watercraft are really the primary most high risk pathway for the movement of mussels from infested water bodies to non-infested so we we started those check stations at places like at the Cherry Creek rest area on I-15 that you referenced and many other locations across the state. We focused on trying to keep the movement of those watercraft from coming into the state, that we try to catch them at a roadside, try to find something carrying mussels that had been in infested water, do a hot wash on it, do a decontamination and a hold if we needed to, if it had live mussels on it. That's been the focus, the most obvious and most visible focus of our prevention program since 2009. And we've added stations, we've added hours, we've added days at locations around the state, some in inside the state, places like Redfish Lake and Stanley Basin. And, you know, that's been most of our focus. What people haven't always seen is that we've also had a comprehensive monitoring program as well as part of that prevention program. What was clear, 
even probably more important than just finding a boat that may be carrying mussels is trying to find an infestation through regular surveillance of water bodies across the state and hopefully find an infestation early enough we could do something about it. So since 2009, we've done surveys for the juvenile life stage of mussels. They're called villagers, V-E-L-I-G-E-R-S. And so we, we throw plankton nets and do plankton toes across the state and water bodies. We try to have multiple sampling events throughout the season in those water bodies. We know what the spawning season is relative to water temperature for quagga and zebra mussels. And we've done that since then. We've pulled anywhere from 1,600 to 2,000 samples a year each year. That is how we found the mussel population in the mid-snake near Twin Falls. Regular surveys that we do every year. Uh, we send them to a lab. They look under a microscope for those villagers. They have a very distinctive shape. If they think that there's one there, then we send it for genetic confirmation. But we don't identify anything as positive until we have multiple samples, multiple sampling events, because it is possible that you have introductions that don't really mean you have an infestation. So that prevention effort that we've had, that combination of watercraft inspection and those regular surveys and surveillance have been the keystones of our program since 2009. And in this instance, we think we found an infestation very early on, and then we took the actions that we did regarding treatment. That treatment process and, and what everybody's read about and probably most interested about now means that our rapid response plan, once we had a confirmation, went into instant effect. So we do those things that, a lot of things simultaneously. We quarantined the water body so that we didn't have any more access to that water body to move mussels or, or villagers or affected water, infested water out of that area. We work to delimit and do more intense surveys to define where exactly our infestation is and what it looks like. And we looked at treatment and that's what led us up into the, the last couple, three weeks. So how do you quarantine a body of water, especially on a river? Well, <laughs> good question. <laughs> and, and, and in this instance, we probably had the good fortune of this being where it was because it's right in the middle of the Snake River Canyon. There's limited access anyway. So we did what we always knew we would and what other states have had to do, which is first prohibit access by watercraft to the river. And in this instance, it was relatively easy because there's a limited number of access points anyway. Obviously, it would be a bigger challenge if we were at some place like American Falls Reservoir or Palisade or, you know, some of those places, it would be much more difficult. But in this instance, we, we had the good fortune of it being in the in the bottom of the canyon with limited access. So we issued a an emergency administrative quarantine rule that basically said thou shalt not use and have access to the water in this specified section between Twin Falls and our initial order went down to Niagara Springs. We're going to amend that back up and shorten that stretch. But we put that regulatory piece in effect. Those, those folks that operate launches and access points in the river, predominantly in this case, Twin Falls City and Twin Falls County and Idaho Power, they all also closed access through their locations and, and the public, uh, thankfully, and we do appreciate that they've, they've minded that, that quarantine while we go through our process. So it's not, administratively, it's not a hard thing. In practical terms, depending on the water body, it can be obviously fairly difficult. So Lloyd, we're recording this mid-October of 2023, mm -hmm. just to put a timestamp on this. When the surveys are being done to search for those villagers, those larval forms of the mussel, 
you obviously found a, you know, you found a positive identification in that part uh, near Twin Falls segment of the snake. Obviously, the river is flowing down grade. How do you know you don't have villagers upstream of that, I guess? So, good question. And, and we had, again, a couple of good fortune events with this particular stretch of river. This particular stretch of river, because of some of the other uh, irrigation diversions and such, is is really the lowest flow section of the river anywhere in the state right now. You know, it runs anywhere from 300 to 400 cubic feet per second. We know that the Milner diversion to the north side and Twin Falls Canal companies is just upriver, so that obviously provides some control. We have Idaho Power Facilities there, and that provides some control and consistency. And we know the, the flows were very low at the time when we found these villagers. The whole purpose in these things in the spawning process is those villagers are looking for some place to attach to a rock or some kind of surface and congregate. That's what their whole goal is at that point. We did a tremendous amount of sampling. We did a regular sampling upstream and downstream of this location when we initially found the villagers. In our delimiting surveys, those more intense surveys, we obviously hit those areas very heavily upstream and downstream as well. We've never found villagers anywhere else other than that location. So we don't believe they've moved, or at least we haven't been able to catch any of them that have moved. And we know the flow was such, and the the, the character of the river at that point, there's really, you know, they're, they're, they're hanging right there. There's a lot of eddies, a lot of still water in this particular section of the river, where the actual spot was where we eventually found the adult and where we found the plume of villagers. You know, we, we think they're right there. And, you know, it might be different in a different instance. If we were in a different section of river, that might be a little bit different scenario. We're fairly confident that they, you know, that they stayed right there. I'm never going to say anything 100%, but, you know, we, we feel fairly confident that they're they're right there. And so you, you do have an adult as well uh, with, you know, it's produced a shell and it's anchored? Mm-hmm. Yep. We found one. We know there's got to be at least two. When a mama muscle and a daddy muscle love each other very much, but we we know there's probably you know we know there's got to be additional adults somewhere in there. We're sure that they're probably right there on that same rock somewhere. Huh. That section of river we had divers when we initially did our delimiting surveys and we identified what we call plumes of mussels. So if you imagine, you know, I put a map in front of you with dots where we found villagers. Those dots where we found them, with the exception of this one spot with three survey points in a fairly small area with the exception of those three everywhere we found any villagers it was like one villager two or three so i'm talking you know a pretty small representation until we got to that plume in that plume we found 20 30 40 villagers in in three samples so we knew there was something there a signal telling us that there was more going on there so we had a couple of our staff that went down and dove in that section of the river and at about 16 feet of water on a rock, they found a mussel, wow. which is really a pretty incredible find. And <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. referred to it as a needle in a two-mile-long haystack. And and very fortunate that we found it. I was it was a little bit of an emotional moment when they did. For all involved, I think for most of us though, I think we recognize that's a good thing. So we weren't just seeing a ghost. We could attach a name and a face, if you will. We had we now had the poster to put in the post office of who our most wanted was and. You know, it, it gave us a, a point to, of reference and it gave us something to look at and, and make sure that it died somewhere else down the line. So when you have a mommy and a daddy muscle meet up, how quickly does the whole population of quagga muscle 
then kind of develop? You know, what's the time frame that you have until it is to the point where you, you kind of like, this is serious. So they, they will put out literally millions of villagers as, as they spawn. And the interesting thing about the villagers themselves is they're very fragile. They're very sensitive to temperature, to light, to water chemistry, to a million different things that, that impact their ability to, to be successful in, in reproducing and having a, a juvenile that will eventually become an adult and attach. And as a sidebar, we know that those villagers, there's been studies about in the movement of watercraft, when you look at temperature and humidity and all of those things, how long a villager might last at different times of the year when it moves from an infested water body to another. So there's been, there's been some good research into how fragile these things are. If you go back to the reproduction process, you know, that question of how long has a lot of variability to it. The adult muscle we found, you know, this is a relatively young muscle. This was probably the first year that it had a chance to settle and, and reproduce. So, you know, when was it ultimately introduced? We don't really know for sure. But, you know, and was it introduced as an adult? Was it introduced as a villager? You know, those are things we don't know and probably never will know. But that time frame can be highly variable depending on all of those factors I mentioned. So I, I can't really nail down that time for you other than to say, you know, there's a lot of things that need to happen correctly. And I think when you see invasive species that are that aggressive in trying to reproduce, I think it, it presents to you the idea that they're, they're working that hard because it probably is that hard to, to reproduce and establish yourselves. And, you know, fortunately, we found this at a point where we didn't have an infestation that had gotten away from itself. And, and really, you know, we think we found a very localized infestation that gave us a good opportunity to be successful. We've got a lot of, we've got several years of, of testing we got to do before we really call ourselves negative and know for sure that we got rid of it. But certainly we feel like we caught it at a good time. So run us through what the next year or so looks like on that stretch of the snake. So the treatment we've done over the last two weeks, we utilized the chelated copper product that fortunately, again, good fortune on our side, the company had had registered as a pesticide in the state for several years. And when we reviewed all of our options for products that we could treat with, we know that copper products are, are most commonly used as molluscicides. They're used in a number of different settings in the water business, whether it's irrigation, drinking, you know, I mean, these kind of products are used commonly to control everything from algae to weeds to mollusks and, and other species, but they'd had this product registered for several years. So for us, from a time standpoint, we knew we needed to move quickly. We knew people wanted us to move quickly. So having a product that was registered and available to not have any sensitive species in that particular stretch of the river from an ESA major species standpoint, you know, everything kind of lined up correctly. So we, we did a two-week treatment in that stretch of the river utilizing this chelated copper product. Our next step now is our cruise this week. So we kind of demobilized everything on Friday the 13th. This week, our crews are starting their post-treatment monitoring and surveys to see if they find any villagers. We're continuing to do water chemistry sampling to see what the copper level levels are as a residual of the treatment to make sure they get down to back to baseline levels and when that happens. So we have those data points. So we wanna be able to build that picture. In our rapid response plan, and most states have it this way, we have to go through five years of negative surveys before we can 
change the status of that water body, that section of the river from positive to negative. So we know we've got at least that long to go through that as a, as a form uh, formality. I'll feel better after we get through at least a full season and don't find any villagers or adults. But on paper, we need to get ourselves through five years. And those survey levels in that stretch of the river will look more like an intensive delimiting survey than they will a normal, normal survey. So it's, it's an area we'll be very diligent with. We'll probably expand and enhance and in more intensely survey in the immediate area around that section of the river. You know, there's a lot of irrigation diversion and infrastructure through there. There's a lot of connection we know and folks that will take a, a kayak or a paddleboard or whatever into that section of the river that may visit a lot of other bodies of water in the area. So we want to make sure we check those more intensely. So that'll be what our world will look like for at least the next five years and managing access to that river and especially managing the decontamination of watercraft that go in there because we've got to treat it as positive. So it's, it's of great interest to all involved that we, you know, control that access, that we decontaminate watercraft that have access to it as they leave and treat it, treat it positive. So I think that's a great point to ask. You know, we've got five years and this is not the only area that we're going to really focus in on. What can Idahoans do to limit quagga exposure? So, you know, we've always pushed the message point of clean, drain, dry. And and that's a good idea. It's one of those things, it's a good idea always to wash your hands and do all those things. Clean, drain, dry is the same way. And we've always encouraged folks that whenever you go out and play on the water um, or work on the water, but when you play on the water and you move from water body to water body, make sure you're not carrying anything from point A to point B. If you've got a motorized watercraft, any watercraft, Make sure it's drained and dried. Make sure it's clean and not carrying noxious weeds. Make sure it's not carrying anything else that's hanging on there, on the trailer, on the watercraft itself. Empty your live well, drain your bilge. All those kinds of things are important. Our stations all have hot wash machinery, and we also, our our permanent staff that are away from the stations, are happy to assist in the washing of, in the proper decontamination of watercraft if they've been anywhere outside of the state, especially in an infested water body. Um, you know, we, we commonly will get calls from folks that if they've been at some place like Lake Powell, even if they go through our stations, they'll, they'll want to get a hold of one of our staff and make sure there's a good hot wash done of their watercraft when they come back. And we're happy to do that. So the main thing is just make sure we're not carrying anything from water body to water body, regardless of quagga mussels and whether you've been in the middle snake, it's just a good idea to, to try to get you know, to, to remember that clean, drain, dry mantra when you go from water body to water body. That's that's really the most important thing. For those folks in that immediate area, obviously, is we have quarantines that will, you know, there will be some changes to the quarantine of that water body, but we sure hope that they respect that quarantine and help us out to make sure we don't bring anything out of that affected area. Stop at check stations when they come through. They really don't take that long to stop through. I don't think we've ever find anybody when they go through, if they have a live muscle, we might hold their boat, but you know, we try to, it helps us kind of keep a, an eye on what's going in and out of the state. It's not just about folks with out of state plates on their vehicles either. We have a lot of people from Idaho that'll go somewhere else and recreate, come back. And we really need them to stop at those stations when they come by and, and get a quick inspection. Let us know where they've been. Let us have a chance to help with that clean drain dry kind of idea and make sure they're not bringing anything home that should have stayed wherever they were. 
So what would be the best way for someone to clean their boats and other types of water vehicles at home? You know, do they rely on a hot wash or can they do something in their backyard? So a hot wash, the nice thing about a hot wash, like what we have at our stations and, and our staff have, is that 140 degree temperature is really crucial. That heat and time and pressure on your watercraft is crucial, especially for quagga and zebra mussel. But I think if they if they make sure, you know, I, I think of it kind of like, uh, you know, washing your car from the standpoint that, you know, if you don't, if you're not carrying a bunch of gunk around with you, it takes away a lot of the question about what might be underneath that. We've seen boats come through our check stations over the years that I don't know if anybody ever took a pressure washer to them at home or anywhere else to, you know, to clean whatever gunk had been collected on there over time. And it makes it easier to identify if, you, if you're carrying anything on your boat. It makes it easier to do all of that. You know, making sure that that boat is drained and dry when you leave. So even if you don't take a pressure washer to it at home, you know, pull the drain plug, you know, make sure those areas have a chance to dry out. Don't carry a bunch of water from point A to point B. We've encouraged folks, especially if they've been in the affected area, not to wash their stuff at home or at a car wash because we don't take a risk of washing something down into the sewer system. But if you have access to a pressure washer at home to at least, you know, make sure you're not carrying anything um, and just do it out onto gravel where it's not going to drain in in case you have anything there. You know, that's obviously something you can do. But that drain and dry is probably the biggest chunk. It sounds like a, you know, diligence and everybody doing their part. You know, the invasive mussels, they're out there and we're just trying to keep them out of our watersheds because once they're here, it's really hard to get rid of them. And we also, you're right, and it's it's more even than the mussels. We have a lot of noxious aquatic weeds out, and including in, in your part of the state. You know, we have projects in places like Blackfoot Reservoir or Bear Lake where we're looking at milfoil and flowering rush and all those kinds of things. So making sure you're not dragging those things around because they're very easily moved as well. And that's what we try to encourage folks is think bigger than just mussels. Think about all that other stuff that might be hanging on a piece of equipment or a trailer as you move around. And those those things are just as important. And we have those projects going on statewide. Well, we really want to thank you for the work you're doing. Can you help us with your trivia question? We asked, when were quagga mussels first found in North America? I believe the answer is 1989. It's been a while on the eastern side of North America, trying to keep them, yep. keep them out of the west. <laughs> yep. They thought they came in on in uh, ballast ballast water on a on a ship that came into the Great Lakes, and there we are. And, you know, we're looking at 30 years yep. or so. It's, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of time for these invasives to move across the United States. And thank you, Lloyd, for joining us and, you know, kind of giving us, you know, a little bit of insight into quagga mussels and invasive aquatic species. So for anyone who wants to learn more about the quagga and zebra mussels, please go to USDA website, agraidaho.gov. Thank you, Lloyd. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. The Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Khalees Kendall and Jamin Anderson. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.